The following podcast is part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Raising teens alone can be brutal. It becomes easier when you are co-parenting with the universe. Welcome to Co-Parenting with the Universe. I am excited to have you here today because I have a guest today with me, uh, Jackie Bailey is the international conversation coach for kids. She gets the kids talking to their parents, making healthy friendships and feeling confident and courageous to speak up and speak out. She has helped many young people share their voices on stage, competitions, and even summits. She's the best-selling author of No Problem Parenting, Developed Through Darkness, Heart Notes, and the, uh, the, an anthology. Self, self-centered leadership. Mm-hmm. Self-centered, self-centered leadership. Yeah. Welcome, Jackie, today. How are you? I am fabulous. Thank you so much for allowing me to be your guest and share my message with your listeners. I appreciate it. I, I'm very excited because um, conversation and, and communication is very, very important in both in parenting and in everyday life. And uh, I'm excited that you, you could give us some light and, and your expertise on it. Before we talk about that, I would love to, for you to tell us how you ended up doing what you're doing today, what was your journey and your pivotal points, maybe? Oh, yeah. Like many entrepreneurs and people who are doing amazing things in the world, they started with a traumatic experience or perhaps a big challenge that tested their faith to some degree. And not unlike those people, I've also had a traumatic childhood In fact, I was in a home where I was chronically abused by an older sibling and a family friend, and there were some other experiences that weren't as chronic, but when you're told not to tell about what's happening to you, you're silenced. I was silenced, and hearing those three little words, don't tell anyone, changed who I was. And it made me afraid to initiate conversation. I was so uncomfortable in social situations because I was always afraid I might tell something that I wasn't supposed to say and that kept me silenced. And it wasn't until years later, after years of chronic abuse, that I was a married woman and I had two small children. And that sibling of mine was married and had a baby of his own and a little girl. And that set me into a crisis situation where I realized if I stayed silent now, there was a little girl that was likely going to be another victim. And yet I had a lot to lose in breaking that silence because I didn't know if my husband would 
love me anymore. I didn't know if I would be disbelieved and people would think I was crazy and try to take my children away from me. It was a lot at risk there. And I did consider that suicide might be the easiest way out. I could just crawl into a rock and never have to worry about either predicament again. And yet I realized, too, that if no one knew that there was danger, then would my own children not be protected? And so I decided that I loved my own children more than I hated myself. And I said three more magical words, starting to my husband, which were, I have a secret. And I started to break that silence and uh, I started going to therapy. And through therapy, I started to realize how powerful it was that I had a voice. I had not had it for most of my life. And as I even just started to describe what had happened to me and started to simply speak out about it, I realized that, gosh, I can actually say something worthy of being heard. You know, I have something important to say. And my story continues, but it wasn't until maybe 10 years ago when I realized that I could actually help other people to empower their own voices and especially children. I had an opportunity come my way. Someone asked me to teach a group of homeschool kids public speaking skills. And I jumped at the chance. And by doing that for just a nine week period, I realized the amazing progress these kids made in being able to feel confident to speak out. And especially during the recent pandemic, Uh, So many of our kids have felt silenced. My students have told me, I I really couldn't tell my my parents how I was feeling because I knew they were stressed out. And if I told them I was feeling sad or lonely, I would just make them feel worse. So in that sense, most of our kids were silenced because they just felt like they couldn't really speak out. And so it happens to all of us at some time or another, we feel silenced and I enjoy that I have the opportunity to share with people and teach them how to empower their voice and especially the most vulnerable among us, the children who need to know that they are worthy of being heard. And so that's a shortened version (laughs) of how I ended up doing what I do. But I see two sides in your story, of course, and we're going to talk about it. There is uh, the, the side of giving our children a voice. But there is also the side of once you recover your voice, once you step back in the full version of who you are, you become a different parent as well, a different wife, a different everything. So how did you, were you aware of the changes in your parenting as a result of having done that? Absolutely. Uh, When I first, when my niece was first born, My daughter was three, perhaps three or four, and that would have made my son closer to two. And so they were still really young. And yet I had so much emotional turmoil at that time. I was an awful parent. I would get angry very quickly. I was impatient, just simply frustrated all the time. And of course, until I broke the silence, my husband didn't know what was going on with me either. Didn't understand why all of a sudden I had become an emotional wreck. (laughs) And when I was able to at least tell him what I had been experiencing, he, he at least understood. 
he understood now what was happening. It wasn't him. It was related to something that I was going through. And so as I started therapy with a wonderful uh, therapist, I she really encouraged me to consider forgiveness. And which I mean, it was the first day I saw her, actually, and I had just shared the horror of my story and the emotional turmoil I was going through. And she asked me, do you feel like you could forgive? And I almost laughed because it it seemed so impossible. <laughs> like she might as well have just asked, do you think you could pick up a truck and throw it across the road? Because it, it just seemed that impossible. But then she said, if you're not at least working toward the possibility that you could someday forgive, then you won't be able to fully heal from this. And, and that's funny. I had a conversation with a, a mom yesterday. And we talked about forgiveness and, and she said, I don't want to forgive. And I said, why? And she said, because then it means that I won't be protected anymore. Mm. And I and that's why I, this word forgive has a very strong uh, association of people have a negative association with that word. Most, most of the time when they have been victims of something. And so I, I, worded it in like letting go of the charge letting go of the emotion attached to it because that forgiveness i from personal experience and from coaching people they have a very hard um reaction when you talk about forgiveness i usually don't talk about it too much before because we do other stuff first mm -hmm. but i'm sure that when she talked about that did you, so you laughed about it, but did you, did it start germinating into your, your back, the back of your mind, or did you notice a change, maybe an opening to something or? Yeah. yeah I mean, it was nice to have the permission to say, it doesn't have to happen now. It doesn't, you don't have to do it tomorrow. You have to do it in a year from now. You don't even have to do it before you die. You just have to be working toward the possibility. And that seemed less of a burden to me. Yes. And it, it did help me to see that, well, at least if I'm, maybe someday I can, because there was always this voice in the back of my head, even as the youngest child that I was going through this abusive situation, I always had this thought in my head that was, if you live through this, you're going to be strong. Wow. And she validated, my therapist validated that, that thought in my head because she was telling me, if, you're, if you get through this, you're going to be ready to do that bigger step. And it made sense to me because that's always what I told myself. And so it just gave me, it wasn't something that I dwelled on every day. It wasn't like, oh, maybe you know, today I really have to work toward forgiveness. It wasn't anything like that. I didn't dwell on it. I just allowed the healing to take place. I started to be more at peace with myself, and therefore I did become a better parent. I was a little more patient and present, which is really important as a parent. And it wasn't until probably 12 years later that I felt like I'd managed things well. I was in a happy place, and my husband asked me, do you feel like you've forgiven? And I had the ponder on that for a second. And in the final analysis, I said, you know what, when I think about that particular person, I don't get angry. 
I don't feel afraid any longer. I It's not something that I dwell on. I, it's not painful. And so I surmised, yes, I actually think I have. I think I uh, have forgiven. And then the next question my husband asked was, does he know that? <laughs> and I realized, okay, that's the final step. And that's where the courage comes in because I realized I actually needed to face him and tell him that. And at that point, I had moved from home, so I flew back uh, to where I had been raised, where he was still living, just for the purpose of facing him, which I hadn't done in years, and say three more magical words, which is, I forgive you. Do you think that you had to do that for you or for the little girl that he had? I think both. Okay. Uh, but at that time, I was thinking about me as an adult woman going, this is the final step. This this makes sense. This is what I need to do. And this is going to be that moment where I feel like it's done. <laughs> as if as if healing is just finally done. It, it never really is. Because even after that, you start to realize, oh, why do I have that attitude about that thing? Oh, maybe it's because of this. But but at least it felt to me like it's going to be the final part of the puzzle. And it and it actually was not necessarily for me, but it was the it was the permission I gave him now to progress, which I had not really considered. And and this is what I have learned through that process. Is that as the victim is going through the healing process and get strong enough to, to reach the point where forgiveness is possible. Somewhere in that time frame, the victimhood and the perpetrator's roles have, have flipped because I, at some point, then became the person of power over that abuser. And I had held the keys to his prison cell, which he'd put himself in. Right. And so when I said, I forgive you, it unlocked that door and it allowed him now to actually progress. And his life at that point was awful. He he had been arrested a few times for crimes similar to what he had committed with me. Uh, he had been in and out of a couple marriages. He'd had three children out of wedlock. He was trying to take care of. And they were two, he had twin boys that were ill and required a lot of care. And he had a hard time keeping jobs. And so his life was a mess. And when I offered to him this forgiveness, it allowed him to have a different life. And, and what you see, I mean, in your case, it was beneficial because I want to uh, give a, some kind of disclaimer for whoever is listening. That in some cases it's not prudent to go back to the perpetrator if there is any any uh, possibility of danger, emotional or physical. You can you can forgive from afar. You don't have to expose Absolutely. yourself again. Absolutely. And some people can heal, like the case of your brother, maybe. But some people can't. And it's not, for example, if you have a pure, I don't know, a narcissistic pervert, pervert narcissistic. Right. Most right. of them don't heal. So I just want to say that you, for me, I don't also feel in my case for the person that I have to forgive in my life because they, they hurt my kids. I forgive from afar, 
because right. I don't want any contact. And uh, But it's also okay. It's something very personal. You felt that it was your next step. And we feel we have the wisdom within us to tell us what it is. Absolutely. And, you know, my situation had provided me more information than perhaps most people would get in that in that um, circumstance, because during my healing process, one of the more frightening moments that I was asked to take on was to I, I wrote a letter to my abuser, who was my brother. I wrote a letter to him and was able to put down all of the feelings and all of the accusations on paper so that he could clearly see what he had done to me and how it had affected my life. Well, my therapist encouraged me to actually face him and read that to him if I felt like I could. And of course, she told me not to do it alone, that I needed to have someone with me, probably not my husband, but someone who was completely removed from the situation, not any other family member, but someone who would just sit there with me and allow me to read this letter face to face to him. And I and I actually did that. It was one of the hardest days of my life, <laughs> but I did it. And in that process, what I learned was that he had gone to clergy and he had confessed what he had done to me. So he was and in fact, he had, he had gone to three different levels of clergy because each one would, for, would say you're forgiven. And then he would move on feeling that this isn't complete yet. I still don't feel right. So he would talk to someone in, in a higher level of clergy and they, and they said the same thing. And then he did that. And so I learned that he'd actually tried to get help. And he didn't get it. And I, at that moment, I actually developed compassion for him because I realized that in his confession, no one had actually come to me and said, Hey, how are you? How were you affected by this? Yeah. And, and no one really cared enough to see it through for him that he received the help that he needed to heal from whatever abuse he had suffered as a kid that I wasn't aware of. Yes. And so I, at that moment, I realized neither one of us had been served. Neither one of us had been taken care of. And we were both victims at that point. So I will say that with that foundational knowledge, through those other years where I was working on that forgiveness, I always had that sense that he deserved some help as well. Because he, he yes. like I said, his life was a mess and he was making really poor choices. But I've come to realize that hurt people hurt people and he was, and he had been hurt and therefore he had hurt me yeah. and I could have compassion for that. So forgiveness in that sense felt a little bit more uh, able to be completed for me. And I understand exactly what you're saying that some people can't go back to the person because it is an unsafe situation, but there are lots of ways that you can release that. And even without- if the person- if the person passed on, there are still ways. There are yeah. still ways. And that's the beauty of it. Even just the writing of the letter. Yeah. And and that's what I that's what I tell people now is you've got to find a way to get your voice out there. Writing is a very powerful tool, especially if you use longhand and not a computer like most of us yes. know how to do. But there's some special relationship between what's in your brain and your heart that comes out the end of your hand with a writing utensil that that really allows that emotion to flow and so 
that was the first step for me is writing it all down. And my, my therapist said, you can go read this to him or you can burn it. You can mail it to him. You can tuck it away and look at it 10 years down the road, whatever for you seems right. That's what you need to do. But I do feel that writing it or starting to speak about it to audiences or to yourself in some way that's where the power comes out. That's what I've learned is that healing comes through using your voice because your voice is the value that that you'll learn in yourself to having yourself. Because if you've been silenced, you've got to start breaking the silence and speaking yeah. it out. And when you do that and you finally start to even just describe what happened to you, there's so much power in that. Because as a, when it happens to you as a child, you don't have the language skills. You don't have the vocabulary to say, this is what happened to me. And so it's all emotional energy. It's all emotional words that, you know, are really yeah. used verbally. And until you learn how to describe it, you're stuck. And so using your voice or using a written word to start breaking that silence, even if it's just to the atmosphere around you, that's powerful, but it has to be done. I know that uh, when we do tapping, because we do EFT, I do EFT with clients, we most, unless it's too traumatizing and we take gentle, gentler methods, we encourage people to speak it out because, like you said, you hear yourself. And mm-hmm. in my teaching, there is also a question of vibration. And the vibration, the energy of your voice will also play a role in there. So yeah. it's really, really powerful, really, mm-hmm. really powerful. Yeah. Uh, so now let's talk about the kids. Because yeah. as a mother, in my own family, I discovered not so long ago, and my kids are, are my last one is 19, about things that were happening when they were at their father, father's house uh, who had some alcohol addiction that they never told me because they were, they thought it was normal. They had friends who had people, fathers who drank too much. They had, and I was horrified because I never really realized how abusive it was. Mm -hmm. And only later on, I heard about that, even though there were other stuff that came out about other kinds of abuse for my kids, but even small details that I never heard about. And I wish that I had known at the time how to, even without maybe asking directly, because sometimes it's too much for them or something to say to let them know. It didn't even cross my mind. Everything looked so okay for a while mm-hmm. until, until it was really obvious. And then I pulled them out and then they didn't have to go back. Is there a way, first of all, for parents, what do you tell parents to encourage their kids to talk if anything would happen to them? Yeah, that's open communication between parent and child is so important because you want to know what's going on with them. You don't want to let situations like that fester mm-hmm. and giving them giving them nowhere to go or an outlet to share what they're feeling. And what I have found, as is talked about in the book, um, No Problem Parenting, 
that we speak at our kids a lot. If you think about the number of statements that that are thrown at them either by us or by teachers or other parents or friends during the day, it's pick up your books, go down, get down for breakfast, eat your lunch, you know, pick do your homework. Those types of statements, although part of of our daily routine and they need to get done, they're not filling our children's value bank account. You know, we're not helping them to be more, to feel more worth, worthwhile by throwing statements at them. Yeah, for sure. We do need to be willing to ask questions of them. If we want our kids to talk to us, we need to ask them questions. And we need to not have a device in our hands. <laughs> When we're doing it, because they know kids learn really fast, whether or not you're actually listening to them. And if you're asking them a question while you're texting a friend, they know that answering you is not going to be worth the the, the air in their lungs because you're not listening to them. So um, and and let me illustrate that by an example of what really happened to me one day. It was probably when I was 14 or 15. So I had undergone years of abuse at this point. By an older brother and my mother, who I was not close to, um, we had never had heart-to-heart talks. But on this particular night, I don't know if she sensed there was something ill at ease with me that I was not at peace or that there was something going on. Right? She, she must have sensed it. She came into my room while I was getting ready for bed, and she sat down on the bed and she asked me a question, which is. You know, great idea, but the way she asked it was so much much more damaging than it could have been. She said, are you letting someone do something to you they shouldn't be? <laughs> and that's well, what I wanted to, to show people is how yeah. to do this. Right. So what that question did to me is it proved that I was at fault for what was happening because I was letting it happen. And therefore, I was never going to break the silence to her. How could I ever answer that? Because uh, now I'm guilty. Now I have shame associated with everything happening to me. And my mother had no idea what she did that night in the way that she worded that question. But I do feel that we do that with our kids a lot. Or we answer in a, in a judgmental way when they do answer our questions. Um, like, what? How, how did you do on your math test? Oh, I got a C. A C? What? We pre- we studied so much. How did you only get a C? And we we make these judgments. We react too quickly emotionally. And now our kids know, okay, I can't really tell you the truth because there's going to be mama drama. <laughs> right? Our own fear. That's our own fear yeah. talking. Because yeah. we dramatize. And it, that's why it's important to first parent ourselves before we even... Okay. To constantly parent ourselves and, and, and go into the shadow side of ourselves and see examine our fears. Because yeah. I know that for me, in my case, I had a very open dialogue with my kids. They were coming to me with questions that were very difficult to answer, like, why doesn't he love me? And I was trying to find some answers because in my house, we grew, they grew up with a lot of uh, spiritual notions and we believe in past lives and we believe that we choose our incarnation so i had tools there to tell them that even though there were very difficult and painful stuff happening there was also something on the other side that maybe and of course they need to be at the age appropriate to have this kind of conversation that there is still some kind of 
treasure for them to, to, to find, to extract from all that. But things like, to give you the example that I re was referring to earlier, um, when they saw their father drinking and literally blackout, and I never knew that until later, and they were led to cook for themselves and stuff like that, and it never transpired. I asked them what they ate, but I didn't think about, you know, sometimes you don't think about it. Yeah. And thank God it didn't last for too long. And uh, my oldest knew, very, they all knew they had to develop uh, ways to take care of themselves. Yeah. But the, the, the way you said it was perfect because when you formulate your question in a way that has an underlying judgment in it, the kids mm -hmm. won't feel safe. They, they won't. won't. They won't. And they'll learn that quickly. I mean, I, I, unfortunately, I, I know that when I, when I talk with parents, I say, if your kids aren't communicating with you the way you'd like, it's because they've learned by your example that it's yeah. not a good thing to do. <laughs> and, oh. I, and I know that parents are busy and they've got a lot going on. And, but I know that we don't mean to shut our kids down, but we do. We silence them through our reactions. And, and so rather than use the rote questions like, how was your day? Which, you know, really doesn't mean anything. And it's used so often now that most people realize they really don't want to know about my day. But you can get a little more specific. Like, tell me about the best part of your day. What made you feel the happiest today? And by hearing the answer to a question like that, you start to understand what motivates your child. Yeah. Was it that they got to eat lunch with, with somebody? Or was it that they got a good grade on a test? Or was it that the teacher complimented them on something they wrote? And you can learn what motivates your child when you know what was the happiest part of their day. And if you get into a routine of asking that, then you'll get to know your child so much better. On the converse side of that, too, you can ask, well, tell me what was a moment today when you felt frightened or you felt hurt or unsure about your, your talents or something like that? Was there something that happened like that today? And, and again, you can find out a little bit more. And in the case, maybe with your children, maybe they would be open to say, well, I love dad, but when he starts drinking, he changes. And I don't feel comfortable when that happens. If they were willing to say that to you, that would open up your mind to, okay, there might be some things going on here I need to investigate a little further, right? Yeah. But again, without judgment, you're much more free to just listen and recognize that it's not about you. No. When, no. You're, when you're asking your children questions, it's not about you at all. It's to help them to feel empowered to speak to speak out and to share with you what is most important to them. And sometimes we as parents just have to, we're, we're trying so hard to be good parents and we're not getting the accolades we want. There's, it's a very thankless job, right? And so we look for our kids to give us the feedback that we're doing a great job, but that's not where we're going to get it. <laughs> it's just not going to happen that way. <laughs> and so it's not about us. It's always about them. <laughs> I always go, I, I go even further. I'm like, it's our job to love them. It's not their job to love us. Right. Because sometimes they don't show it, especially when they get to be teenagers. And we know it's under there, but it's, sometimes they are a little bit grumpy or worse. But 
if you stay exactly in the role of being there for them and meeting your own needs at another moment, making sure you have your needs met for those accolades. Maybe if you don't have anyone else to give them to you, give it to yourself. That's usually (laughs) we have friends or someone, but in the case you really don't have anyone, give it to yourself. It's not for your kids to meet your needs. And that's really, really important. And the non-judgment part too, because we send cues that are sometimes unconscious. And even if it doesn't cross, if it doesn't pass our lips, our judgment is still there and they will, they they know how to read us really well. Yeah. Well, when you think about the maturity level of our kids, they really aren't thinking logically until around the age of 25, right? I mean, that's a long time to be learning lessons without necessarily logical thinking happening in their brain. They're really living on emotion. They want to feel accepted. They want to feel important. They want to feel like they have friends. They want to feel safe, right? It's it's emotion-based. And so if we want to learn about our kids, we have to base our questions and conversations on how does that make you feel? When that person said that to you, what, what did you feel then? And we can help them to explore their feelings because that's what they what that's what drives them. So if we can understand what their feelings are, we can help them learn how their feelings are their safety net, but they're also their warning net. They're they're also what helps them to understand what motivates them and and who are good people to hang out with and who are not good people to hang out because it's based on what they're feeling about those situations. And so that's a powerful tool. We can give our kids that we often overlook because their feelings can be so dramatic. And sometimes we don't want to handle our own feelings with that. So we just shut them down. And then again, it's not about you. We live in a society where we emphasize a lot the intellect, but not the emotional. We don't teach emotional intelligence. We don't teach emotional, uh, like managing your emotion, dealing with your emotion and, and, that's for what, especially when they get to be teenagers, they have the hormones coming up. There is the brain, the frontal cortex that they have those impulses for pleasure and they want. So it's a, it's a big tornado inside. So it's mm-hmm. for us to be steady and, and know like a, a lighthouse somehow, even if they don't, even if they send us the message that I'm not looking at you, I'm nothing like you. We're still that. Right. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Yeah. Um, how do you help parents if they, for example, if you ask a kid, how do you feel? And they don't necessarily know how to put a name on the emotion or how they feel. What can be useful in this case? Well, I think even we as adults, sometimes we get these labels of emotions. Like, you know, we feel a little bit disappointed in something and we say, yeah, I'm sad. When in reality, maybe it's not sadness, maybe it's something else. And I think it's better if we can feel our bodies for a moment. Okay, am I tense? Am I am I clutching my, my fingers right now? Are my shoulders tight? 
is my breathing shallow? Is there feel like a knot in my chest? And and so by looking at what our physical reactions are to these emotions that we're having, I think we can better understand whether it's good or bad. You know, if our if our physical body is reacting to if it's closing up, then what's happening is either a fear that we have about something that's likely not going to happen and we can let that go. Or there's there's something that we're reliving from the past that's bringing back that reaction. And so I think we can learn to delve deeper. And if our kids can't necessarily define what they're feeling, let's let's so well, well how does well, how does your heart feel right now? Are your what why are your are your shoulders relaxed or are they tight? Um, what are your hands doing? You know, um, do you feel like clenching your teeth? Or, you know, you know, what's happening here in your jaw? And I think we can also help them to decide, you know, what is making me feel good physically as well as internally with my heart. And all of those things together can be a great GPS, right? <laughs> they can they can be this guidance system that we that we can teach our kids to have because we want them to be safe. We want them to be around people that are going to uplift them and love them and make them feel the best about themselves. And once we send them out the door to school, we have no control over that. But yeah. we can teach them how to use their feelings and their physiology to determine, is this right or wrong for me in this situation? And what's going to keep me safe? You know, I, I love what you're saying, because uh, even with adults, uh, and it's even more men than women, but even some women, when we tap, I don't know if you're familiar with EFT. Some people cannot put a name on what they're feeling. They are not sure. So we directly go to the body and locate it in the body. And we they know if it feels good or if it feels constricted or if it's uncomfortable. And I think that by teaching that to our kids, because when we, I know as a mother, I can feel who's good for them and who's not good for them in their friends when they come home but they won't necessarily listen to me. I know right. that with some of my kids, it took years for them to discover what I had seen in people that they were friends with and that I didn't like. But if I tell them I don't like them, it's not going to produce the effect that I want. If, right. if they can learn to read their own body and have some kind of self-awareness of how they feel, and notice the contrast. Oh, that's funny. Here I feel like that, and that's comfortable. And here I, I don't feel comfortable. That is so useful as a compass to know what to do, what not to do, who to see, who not to see. It's it's really important. Yeah, I mean, when you think about it, our kids are really trying to gain independence. Yeah, and so I mean, let's. Let's use the idea that your 14-year-old daughter comes down the stairs. She's going to go out with some friends and she's wearing this really revealing top or a dress that's too short. And you and as a as a mother, you want to go, oh my gosh, go upstairs and change your clothes right now. But the minute you do that, there's this defiant sense of her that's going to go, no, I'm going to show you that I want to do this. And then if she finds out on her own that was a mistake, she's not going to come back to you and go, mom, you were right. I mean, maybe so, maybe in some cases, but in most cases, she's not going to admit that you were right about what you were feeling. But you can take yourself out of that situation and as hard as it might be to think, all right, it's not about me. It's not about me. And so I'm going to not say anything about this dress or this top or whatever she's wearing. 
and let her experience what she's going to experience. And she might actually come back the next day or maybe a week later, you might say, hey, what was where did you get that dress that you were wearing that last Thursday night or whatever? And she might say, you know what? I realized it didn't look good on me and I was uncomfortable with people treating me in a weird way. So I I gave it back to my friend, you know, or something like that. We might find that that our kids are capable of actually discovering those things on our own. And they're willing to much more willing to share with us what the outcome was rather than feel like, yeah, my mom was right. No kid wants to admit that, <laughs> at least not until we're older. Right. <laughs> and and actually, um, it's if you, we're here to equip them for life. So right. when they discover that, that by themselves, it's a much bigger lesson. It's a stronger, something that they won't forget. It's uh, yeah. important. So you are also teaching kids and I don't, do you also teach adolescents to, uh, to uh, practice public speaking? Yes, we have courses that are virtual or in person, depending upon where you are that are eight weeks long for grades four, th- four and five. So there's about 10 and 11 year olds in the yes. United States. And then middle school, which is between 12 to 15 years old. And then we have this high school group and we have courses for each of those. And we also have the adult course. So the high school kids work with adults as well in our in a six week program. And what we found the benefit from that is that today, with so much difference between the generations, it's nice for the younger group to hear messages and ideas from the older folks, <laughs> as well as it opens the mind more of as more ex- experienced folks to hear what the kids are thinking these days. Yeah. And so we we found great benefit in having that mixture. Uh, the college bound high school age kids they might be working on a personal essay that they've got to create to get into a a college of their choice or maybe an intern program where they have to create an essay or a video about themselves, something like that. And they don't know where to start with that messaging. What could I say? I don't, I haven't been through any real trauma. I haven't had a lot of challenges. Some of them might say, and they don't know what they could talk about themselves. So we help them to think about experiences that have taught them some lessons that have shaped their personality that have created a value system for them. And now we can help them work on a message that is completely authentic to them, but also very unique to them. And the adults were learning the same things together. They might be working on a new business, uh, personal branding. Maybe they want to start a podcast like you're doing or, or write a book or be part of a compilation book and they're not sure what their message is. They're not sure what their foundation might be as far as what is their personal branding. So it works well for all groups at the same time. It's it's not a cookie cutter, but I do have a methodology that we work through that helps them discover all these things about themselves. And what do you see? I know that I did uh, Toastmasters when I was in the U.S. and uh my personal challenge was that it was not my first language. So I was very uh, intimidated at the beginning, but I love speaking in front of people since I was young. So I just jumped and did whatever I had to do. And I know that for me, it helped me also even think before I talk. Because right. sometimes you really reflect on what 
what am I trying to say here to make sure that because it's when it's in my head, I understand it, but it doesn't mean that the person that I'm going to explain it to will understand. So right. I reflect more. I think more about how do I have to say it so that anyone from different uh, angles from, with different perceptions really understand my message. I know that brought that to me. And of course, confidence in English. What benefits do you see kids um, uh, receiving from learning to speak in public? Well, if you have one or two examples uh, in mind right now. Oh, absolutely. Well, one student, one of my earlier students, his name is Charlie, and he started taking our courses when he was probably 10 or 11 years old. And he worked through our program, which I mentioned that we have these eight-week courses, but we have 12 of those eight-week courses that build on each other. So if, if a student begins with us and they stay with us, it's about a three-year process, and they're building skill on skill. So Charlie had started with us early on, and he had stayed with us for probably two and a half years. Uh, and then he got into middle school. He he got into some athletics and he couldn't have time to stay with us. So it was about six months after he was no longer a current student with our programs. He came to me personally and he said, Miss Jackie, I love public speaking so much that I want to start a public speaking club at my school. Will you help me? He said. <laughs> and of course, I said, of course, Charlie, I would be, I'd love to help you. Do you have a teacher at school that is willing to sponsor you? Because it sounds like you're going to need to use a classroom. You're going to be able to, and you're going to need to schedule time for this club to meet. There's going to have to be some rules that are, that are obeyed through the school. I don't know what those are. So what kind of support do you have from the school already? I don't have anything from the school. And, and so we talked a little bit about what that might look like. And I said, hey, do you know that Toastmasters International actually has a program for kids? And that it's it's already well established, and there's they have books already, manuals printed for you. It's not something that you'd have to reinvent. And since I'm a Toastmaster as well, I said I could sponsor that for you, and you could use my studio for your club meetings, and and, and that would be a great program to start with. And he said, Yes, let's do that. <laughs> so he, so Charlie, and then he. Um, recruited another early member or early student of mine, Cindy. And together we had a couple of meetings with their parents and we decided how we were going to pull this off and when we were going to meet. And so we formed the Speak Kaboom Gavel Club. And we started with probably 11 or 12 kids. And then we're still going strong three and a half years later. And we've been up to 35 members right now because of the pandemic. We're back down to about 20, but it's still going strong and the kids are still leading it. And so Charlie learning how to love his own voice and recognizing the power of the messages he has to give felt, I want to give this back. I want to, I want to pay it forward and I want to be able to give more kids this opportunity. So that was his idea is to start a speaking club and he's still involved in it. He's, he's still the, the, the main mentor for all the kids and uh, he's been, he's done a tremendous job. So that, that is a, a story of success that yeah. I enjoy sharing. And we also had a student 
who found out about us, he's in Nigeria. And his name is Samuel. He was 11. He's 11 years old, or he was 11 when he started working with us. And he'd had some trauma happen to him. His father left the family. His mom and his older brother were trying to, you know, survive on their own financially and cope with what that means to be sort of um, torn apart (laughs) as a family. But they learned to depend on each other. And Samuel didn't have the greatest internet coverage, but he did have a laptop that his oldest brother was allowing him to use when he was meeting with me. Samuel and I worked together and he presented on two international summits as a speaker, talking about his challenges and how he overcame those challenges through speaking. And then his older brother took his laptop. He had to go back to school and take his laptop with him. And Samuel was disappointed that he wasn't going to be able to continue courses with me. And so I put out this word to my network. I said, Samuel is a young boy in Nigeria. He doesn't have a laptop. He can't continue with our speaking programs. Does anyone know any way that we could get or borrow a laptop for Samuel? Well, as as the story goes, I met someone who knew someone in Nigeria working for Microsoft who was willing to donate a laptop for Samuel as long as he and his mother could come pick it up in the city that was a neighboring where they were. And so we arranged all that to happen. We have pictures of Samuel getting the laptop from this person. And those are the wonderful things that happen. The world becomes smaller when you start providing opportunities for people to really grow and other people who want to help that growth happen. And so I'm very grateful to say that's what our programs have done. They've empowered kids and they've also helped people to feel like they're making an impact in the world by helping the kids be more powerful. So those are a couple of stories I'm happy to share with you. Yeah, because in the first story, I it actually gave him some uh, leadership skills too to create really? a group like that. So and those are things that when they're gonna get to the professional milieu, it's gonna be invaluable um, um, assets. Yeah. Did you? ever had a shy kid who was not really comfortable speaking that was able to overcome his or her shyness as a result of learning how to speak? I get that a lot. That's a, that's a very common question from parents is like, can you help my kid who doesn't talk very much? Who's really shy, doesn't have a lot of friends. And I say, well, the first thing is shyness isn't necessarily a bad thing. It's, It's just part of their personality. And I'm not about changing kids' personalities. I'm about helping them to feel more confident in who they are. I don't want to change who they are. I just want to help them feel more confident in in that. And so what I see about shy kids is they're unsure. It might be a better way to say that it's, it's unsureness rather than shyness. And so when our students start to understand that they do have the ability to feel comfortable in a social situation, because we, our curriculum starts at conversation. How do you have a conversation with someone? What are the key elements to making that conversation effective, where you can make a new friend, where you can learn something new or interesting about that person, where you can understand the value of their personal story on your life? And how, how does... How does their experience inspire you? And that's where we start. And from learning these very simple yet effective conversation skills, 
then they can be a more conversational speaker on stage and still engage with their audience in that very simple way. And it doesn't take long. I mean, three or four weeks for these shy kids to realize I have something valuable to say. And now I have the confidence that I needed to say it. And they don't all of a sudden get vivacious or enthusiastic, but they stand a little straighter. They shine a little brighter and they their voice comes out more more deep and projected farther. And and that's the changes I see. I don't change their personality. I just help them feel better in their own skin. And that's the beauty of what we do. Because what I've seen, I had one um, teen around me who was, she wasn't shy with the people her age, but as soon as there was an adult, her voice was so low that Mm -hmm. many people thought that she was even impolite because she was responding or saying hello, but no, almost no one could hear her. Yeah. And and it was really creating some difficulty in her life, and I'm I think people like, kids like that would benefit a lot from taking classes or courses like yours. Yeah. Behavior in kids is its own language, yeah. and if we can watch the behavior of our kids, they're telling us something. They're communicating something to us. We just need to be in tune enough to figure out what that is. Yeah. And in, like I said, for in a lot of these cases, the kids just aren't feeling heard. So they're speaking really low. They're they're kind of whispering because they're not confident in what they have to say. Yeah. And so when they learn how to be confident, changes everything. And yeah. I've seen it change the dynamic of the family when just the child alone learns to be more empowered. <laughs> Absolutely. Yes, definitely, because then they they have a voice to communicate what they like, what they don't like. And yes, yes. How can people uh, find you on the internet? And I know you have books, but apart from your books, where can they find you? Well, I have a great hub website where you can start. And then from there, you can spoke out into anywhere, any, any place to find me. So it's Jackie Bailey, 360.com. Jackie Bailey, 360.com. And that is where you will find some videos about our mission. You'll find my websites for both my for-profit and my non-profit businesses. You'll find uh, links to all of my books. Uh, you will find a free gift from me for a neurological, psychological, mind-changing tool that's called Positive Prime that's going to allow you I to... I Positive Prime too. Oh, yes, that's, that's good for you. So anyone that visits my site can get a trial run of that 30 days free and you don't even have to use a credit card, but you use it for 30 days and you can tell that you're being more aware of not only yourself, but of your children as well as a parent. And of course, everything will be in the description of this episode. Of course, I, uh, before we part, do you have one last thing, the, the, the thing? or the thing, sometimes I use English, <laughs> that you would like parents to know about giving their kids a voice? Ask questions. Ask your kids questions and let go of the outcome. When you do hear the answer, don't have a judgmental reaction to it. Yes. Try, to, try to ask another question to, to gain greater understanding of your child. And Once you understand what motivates them, 
you've got a great arsenal of of ways that you can then empower your child. If you know that they're motivated by achievement, then you can use that to incentivize them in different ways. If you know that they're motivated by stronger relationships, you can use that to incentivize them to do things you'd like for them to do. But you've got to ask the questions to find that out. So that's my advice to you. And that's great <laughs> advice for anyone, actually, even with adults that you meet, with anyone. Uh, get interest in the person you have in front of you. Try to discover the person and you will have a stronger bond, too. Thank you so much, Jackie, for being here today, for taking the time. I enjoyed this conversation and uh, I love what you're doing. I love public speaking and, of course, having a voice, especially for women nowadays. It's a very, very important thing. And um, again, thank you for being here. Thank you. I really appreciate it. And for our listeners and viewers, I will see you next week with another episode. Bye for now. I'm Suzanne Giesman, and if you've ever wondered about life after death or if it's possible to connect with a higher consciousness, I invite you to join me for my podcast, Messages of Hope. It's my mission to share with you that our loved ones who have passed are always with us and we are so very loved. I want to teach you how to live a consciously connected and divinely guided life. Listen here on the mindbodyspirit.fm podcast network.